Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. I think people come to intermittent fasting with a, an innate curiosity to understand how it can change body composition, how they can lose weight, but it's so much more than that. And some of the things that I hear from my patients almost instantaneously is I have more mental clarity. I am able to power through my mornings without even thinking about food. A reduction in inflammation, so many people will suddenly lose joint pain or pain that they had in their muscles. Many people just feel greater digestive support, so they're not feeling bloated and gassy and their bowel movements become more regular. So Yasmin, this episode made me wanna ask you a question and I want you to be super honest. Okay. (laughs) Do you eat or skip breakfast in the morning? Oh man. The million dollar question. So I'll tell you, I used to skip breakfast all the freaking time. I used to just have coffee. I was never hungry and go straight into lunch. Um, but now I've kind of shifted that a little bit because I felt like shit for so many years and I started eating breakfast and my brain just turned completely on. So I'm very passionate about this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So what are you eating in the morning? Yeah. So I, I know... I feel like I talk about this on all the podcasts that we do, but protein is so big for me. And my sister makes fun of me because I literally will have like a dinner meal for breakfast, like Mm -hmm. chicken. I'll have, you know, grass fed beef, like grounded beef. Like I need something that's very filling because I don't love eggs or anything like that. Um, So I'll do some type of protein, fiber and fat. I try to get that combination because I know it's also blood sugar balancing. I don't want to spike my glucose, especially early in the morning. Cause I used to do that as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my go-to, but how about you, Kaya? Have you ever skipped breakfast? Oh my gosh. So since having a baby, I've been unintentionally skipping breakfast yeah. quite a bit because I wake up, I maybe have a few moments to myself. I'm not thinking really about food or anything at that point. I want to you know, just take a second for myself, maybe squeeze in like a tiny meditation. I'm guilty of answering a bunch of emails at that point. And then Leela's awake. And so at that point, it's just really all about her. I've been trying to be a little bit better about it recently. I saw this, um, I think he was a naturopathic doctor or a chiropractor a few years ago. And he was telling me because your cortisol runs tends to run higher, especially in the morning. I mean, it's supposed to be higher in the morning, but mine was particularly high. He said, just eat one small thing right when you Mm -hmm. wake up, even Mm -hmm. if it's not a full meal, even if it's not a breakfast and it has all of the different elements, just stick something in your mouth. Try not to let it be just pure carbohydrate. His recommendation was some fat or some protein. So I've been, you know, making little like truffles or different things. Seed cycling is a great thing to do in the morning. I do little seed cycling balls. I'll just pop one in my mouth. So for me, I'm like immediately before she wakes up, just one tiny little thing. So at least I'm not having coffee on an empty stomach. And then I'll typically do breakfast around like 9, 30, 10. So I'm not waiting. I'm not completely skipping it, but I'm not doing it first thing in the morning. 
Yeah, you know what's interesting? I know the other day we had a meeting and I skipped breakfast, right? Or it was a little bit later in the day. It was like 10, I haven't eaten and I needed my coffee. And I swear, I felt so crazy with the caffeine. Like even just you mentioning having something so small before you drink your coffee, I also have noticed for me just kind of helps me a little bit, stay a little bit more stable versus feeling cracked out, which is not going to benefit me at all throughout my day. So... Yeah, it's super interesting because today's episode is all about intermittent fasting, which has been proven to be so beneficial for so many different people. But we really wanted to have this conversation with Cynthia Thurlow because we wanted to ask the question, should women in their reproductive years be fasting? And I think what we found through this conversation is that it's super nuanced, unintentionally skipping breakfast And then waiting till way later in the day and gorging on whatever is a bad idea for anyone. Mm -hmm. But intentionally intermittent fasting can be super beneficial. And it depends on the person. It depends on the life stage. It even depends on where you're at in your menstrual cycle, which is what we talk about today. I'm excited because we have Cynthia Thurlow on today with us. She's a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting and is the CEO and founder of Everyday Wellness Project. She's been a nurse practitioner for over 20 years, a two times TEDx speaker, and her second talk on intermittent fasting has been viewed over 7 million times. She's a host of her podcast, Everyday Wellness, which is listed as 20 podcasts that will help you grow in 2020 by Entrepreneur Magazine and in Business Insider. They named her podcast, 21 Podcasts Expand Your Mind in 2021. So she's just an amazing, amazing entrepreneur, expert, and we love this interview with her. Yeah. So in this interview, we talk about who fasting is for, who is not for, how to fast in alignment with your menstrual cycle, how to set up your meals for success if you are fasting, how fasting can help with PCOS. Uh, We talk about fasting in alignment with the sun. Um, Actually, vice versa, let me change that. So fasting overnight, but eating while the sun is out, circadian fasting. We talk about creatine, we talk about muscle, we talk about so much more. So if you're interested in fasting and you wanna know is fasting for you, This is a great episode, so let's get into it. Well, Cynthia, it's a pleasure to have you on. I know you had a TED Talk go viral, and it has over 14 million views, which is phenomenal, and it's all around intermittent fasting. So I'd actually love to start there. You know, what is intermittent fasting, and what are some of the top benefits you think that come from it? Well, thank you for the warm introduction. I've really been looking forward to connecting with both of you. I would say that intermittent fasting really in many ways is misunderstood. It's really eating less often, which is really aligned with the way our bodies are designed to thrive as opposed to the conventional wisdom, which is, you know, eat snacks and mini meals and stoke your metabolism and air quotes. But when I think about some of the key benefits, I think people come to intermittent fasting with an innate curiosity to understand how it can change body composition, how they can lose weight, but it's so much more than that. And some of the things that I hear from my patients uh, really almost instantaneously is I have more mental clarity. Mm. I am able to power through my mornings without even thinking about food, a reduction in inflammation. So many people will suddenly lose joint pain or pain that they had in their muscles or in their feet. Um, Many people just feel greater digestive support. So they're not feeling bloated and gassy and, you know, their, their bowel movements become more regular. But I also reflect on these scientific principles like autophagy, this waste and recycling process that goes on in our bodies when we're in an unfed state. 
And as we're doing longer fast, we can actually get upregulation of autophagy in our bodies, which the way to think about that is we're taking out the garbage. So it's really important cellular debris, diseased, you know, mitochondria, etc. And then, you know, my clinician side always reflects on changes to biophysical markers. So improvement in blood pressure, um, cholesterol, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, um, blood sugar metrics and fasting insulin, uric acid. And so for me, it's really a very comprehensive strategy that if, if utilized well, it's just one of many, if utilized well really has profound net impact on so our health. I have a ton of questions. Right. I'm like, where do I even start? But um, I think something that comes up a lot for our community is there are so many different ways to fast. There are so many windows. There's the difference between time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting. And so you're saying intermittent fasting is essentially eating less, but are there more parameters that people should be considering when it comes to fasting? Yeah, and I, I think on a lot of different levels, there's a lot of misinformation. And so when, I, when I'm bringing the concept of fasting to someone for the first time, maybe they've never heard of it or they've never attempted it, I usually try to explain that there's a time during the day in which you eat and then there's a time during the day in which you are not eating. And so talking about a fasting window, that could be 14 hours, 15 hours, 16 hours or longer. Um, and then there's a time mostly spent while you're sleeping in which you are not eating in that fasted state. So maybe you go from breakfast in the morning until after dinner time. Maybe it's you know a, a 12 hour eating window to start and then you have 12 hours or 14 hours of digestive rest. But there are other types of fasting. There are alternate day fasting. So maybe you fast one day and then the next day you have a normal feeding schedule. Um, there are longer fasts, 24, 48, 36 hours, 72 hour fasts. Obviously those are more kind of advanced strategies, but there's always the context of understanding there's a time in which to eat and a time in which you're not eating. But when people are new to fasting, I usually like to talk about that 16-8. So 16 hours fasted with an eight-hour feeding window where people can get two good-sized meals to ensure that they're getting the proper macros to be able to support their body. But that's usually a good starting point. Got it. And so our community is primarily women in their reproductive years. We are also working with a lot of women who are going through perimenopause and menopause, but for the most part, it's women in their reproductive years. And I think there's so many different viewpoints online of whether or not women should be fasting during this period of their lives. What's your take on it? Well, I think it's a really important question because I am so innately protective of women still at their peak fertile years, because even if you're choosing not to have a child right now, your body is exquisitely sensitive to cues that we take from our environment, whether it's stress on our bodies, whether it's when we're eating, what types of foods that we're eating. So when I speak to women 35 and under that are still at their peak fertile years, I'm always speaking in the context of are you already at a goal weight and very lean? Are you very athletic? Those are the types of women that should not be doing fasting all that regularly because they're already lean. And we know that our bodies, we have to have a certain amount of healthy fat tissue to be able to support not just our menstrual cycles, but the potentiality of conception. So if someone is a very athletic woman who's doing a lot of demanding training, maybe they do 12 to 14 hours once or twice a week and that is not a very, that's not a very long fast, but it's a good amount of digestive rest. So thin women, I'm very cautious with. Now we know the bulk of our population right now is actually not very metabolically healthy. And so in the context of women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome or obese or overweight, 
understanding there's a time in our menstrual cycle to fast and a time when not to. So the day one of our menstrual cycle, it starts the follicular phase. This was an estrogen predominates. We generally can get away with a wider fasting window. We can get away with a little lower carbohydrate diet, more intense exercise up until ovulation. So that's the time I generally recommend if a woman is in peak childbearing years, maybe she's fasting a couple days a week, but not doing it to extremes. Again, because our bodies are exquisitely sensitive to cues from our environment. And then after ovulation, if they're even aware of when ovulation occurs, that's when progesterone predominates. And this is generally when I'll say to women, 12 hours of digestive rest is completely healthy. And for a lot of people, they feel so much better just not eating constantly throughout the day. So understanding that in that progesterone dominant phase of our menstrual cycle, that's the time to kind of take your get, you know, take the foot off the accelerator, not doing as much intense exercise, making sure you're eating the right amount of right amount of macronutrients. So you may you may actually do better with a little bit more discretionary carbohydrate, but leaning into that protein. So I think the other thing to really speak to when it pertains to younger women is that it is not at all unusual when women start fasting that their menstrual cycles may get a little longer, a little shorter to start, but that should not be a constant. And certainly if your menstrual cycle goes away, if you don't get your period and you're not pregnant, that is definitely a sign that in your body, that may be too much stress. So we talk about hormesis, hormetic stressors, and that's when I say that fasting is a form of hormesis, but we don't want it to be too too much stress. So those are usually the bits of caution that I will recommend that, you know, one or two days a week of 12 to 14 hours of digestive rest is completely fine. And I find most women actually do really well with that, but backing off as they're getting closer to getting their menstrual cycle and certainly being aware of the impact of fasting on their cycle as well. That's great. And can you give us maybe some examples of women that you've worked with maybe who were struggling with PCOS or some sort of estrogen dominance or hormonal imbalance that fasting did make a difference for them. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because if you look at the research on PCOS, it's really understanding that at the basis of PCOS is chronic inflammation and insulin resistance. And so, you know, one of the easiest ways to improve insulin resistance is to lean into the lifestyle piece. So before we even start talking about medication, because there's lots of things that can address PCOS, I start talking about macros. I start talking about leaning into more protein, less carbohydrate. If we know you already have a, an insulin resistance issue, carbohydrates are not per se bad, but the processed carbs are things you really want to limit in your diet. So it might be that you have low glycemic berries or small portions of sweet potato, but I was starting with adjusting your macros and then really kind of stepping into that fasting piece and seeing how do you do with 12 to 13 hours of fasting? Those two things alone, along with with physical activity, and when I say physical activity, it could be as benign as walking. We know that um, we actually start with insulin resistance in our muscles first. And I think when people understand that, it helps them understand why physical activity is so important. We have a, a population that in many ways is very sedentary. So I'll say to women, after you have your lunch, go for a 10 minute walk. After you have your dinner, go for a 10 or 15 minute walk because our muscles are really a glucose disposal unit if you wanna think about it that way. So when I start thinking about women with PCOS, I start with the lifestyle. And then obviously there are some really great supplements that can be very helpful for PCOS. Um, obviously working in conjunction with a healthcare provider who's done the testing to really look at those metrics to see um, you know, what is going on with your body. Not everyone with PCOS is obese. There are plenty of pe people with thin phenotype PCOS. 
meaning there are people that are thin that have PCOS, um, and also understanding that not everyone needs medication. I've seen women that have just adjusted their macros and started to do 12 or 13 hours of digestive rest and done some physical activity that have been able to make some significant improvements in their, um, you know, kind of in their metabolic health. The other thing to understand is that what is classic for PCOS is this luteal phase defect. So they don't make enough progesterone. Um, so they have not enough progesterone. So they have these wonky cycles. Sometimes they're too short. Sometimes they're too long. They don't ovulate. And so I do find um, in specific women based on testing, um, things like berberine, which is a supplement can help with insulin sensitivity, but also sometimes even progesterone can be very helpful. But again, in the context of testing and really looking at that, but I do find those are kind of foundational principles about PCOS that help women enormously and really understanding that 25% of women with PCOS are thin. So it's not just a byproduct of individuals that are obese or overweight as well. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use, we make it effortless effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. And I just have a quick question. I love also how you call, you know, fasting digestive rest. That makes a lot of sense to me and just feels very gentle. So you've mentioned, you know, you kind of talk through women in the reproductive years doing it potentially on the first half of their cycle. And those with PCOS, it might be a good mechanism. When you are saying, and this might be a very simple question, but this digestive rest, would you recommend it to be typically like after they ate dinner, let's just say hypothetically like 6 p.m. up until the morning or how can, can you kind of go into the details of that a little bit more? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and one thing to kind of mention, if we are aligned with chronobiology, so the way that our bodies respond to light and dark cues, we have internal clocks in our bodies, not just our penile gland in our brain, we have melatonin clocks throughout our digestive system. And so when I talk to women and I say to them, the research is certainly suggestive. We are more insulin sensitive during the day. So when it's light outside, we become less insulin sensitive as the day goes on. So yes, I would agree with you. Have a dinner, fast until morning. Maybe you're breaking your fast 9, 10 a.m. Have a meal then, have a meal later in the afternoon and kind of shut that feeding window down. Understanding that if we're eating a massive bolus of food two to three hours before bed, it can make it harder for our body to process that food bolus. And I know bolus is a terrible word, uh, but to process that meal. And it's also making it harder for our body to acclimate, to bring that blood sugar response back down. And especially if we're not putting our macros together. So our protein, fat, and carbohydrates, um, there are certainly schools of thought on in terms of when to time carbohydrate intake. And I typically say like, if you eat enough discretionary protein with each meal, 
you will not have as much room for all that carbohydrate. And I, and I think really explaining to people that you want to lean into or you really want to embrace the fact that we're more insulin sensitive throughout the day. And that's the time to actually have a larger meal as opposed to right before bedtime. Um, so that actually uh, brings about my next question, which is essentially a lot of most people, I think, still are skipping breakfast. So is your recommendation to eat breakfast and then potentially, if you're going to narrow your feeding window, eat before the sun sets or skip dinner? Yeah. And so breaking our fast really can occur at any time. Like for me personally, I, I encourage my patients and my clients not to eat the first two hours after they get up. So if they get up at six, don't eat before 8 a.m. I do find for a lot of women that they feel better eating between 9 and 11 a.m. And so a degree of experimentation, I think, is very helpful. And then allowing four to five hours between that and your next meal can be very advantageous. And there are a lot of things that go on in our digestive system that are optimized if we're eating less frequently. So, yes, I always encourage people to experiment. I have some people that will tell me they don't feel good if they eat at 9 a.m., but 10 or 11 a.m. is their sweet spot. And certainly when I travel, I always encourage people to kind of do some degree of experimentation to find, is there a different window that works better for you? I find some people, depending on where they are in their menstrual cycle, they may really struggle to go longer in the morning and that's okay. Um, one thing about fasting that I think is really important is for people to understand it's designed to be flexible. You don't have to be rigid. Uh, and I, if you're trying to white knuckle it through fasting throughout your menstrual cycle, then you're not doing it the right way. And there's no shame in admitting that some people just, it, it just isn't the right strategy for them, but the digestive rest piece is absolutely aligned with the way I think our bodies are designed to, to thrive. So if someone goes from dinner to breakfast and they don't eat, that's fine too. You know, you mentioned the importance of protein and I want to talk about it because I was that woman who wasn't eating enough protein, kind of snacking throughout the day. So you saying like eating, you know, I was eating quite frequently, so didn't have any digestive rest. And when I shifted the mentality and started having three meals a day with protein, I was fuller, felt much better and was snacking less. So can you kind of talk about the importance of full meals and also the power of protein? Because I think we're all under eating protein. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's interesting because if I have a patient give me a diet recall, almost every woman without exception is eating 40 or 50 grams of protein a day. And so protein is so important for so many different reasons. But, you know, number one, it breaks down into amino acids that our body can effectively utilize. There are stretch receptors in our stomach. There are particular hormones in the body that get activated when we consume enough protein. So for people that are listening and saying, what does that mean? I usually recommend 40 to 50 grams of protein per meal. So I encourage people to, to accept that you want to aim for 100 grams of protein a day. Now, if you're currently eating 30, you slowly work your way up. You don't go from 30 to 100. You would be miserable. And it could be that you go from six ounces of fish to eight. It could be that you go from, you know, six ounces of steak to eight or, you know, kind of increasing the metrics or maybe you're having a burger and hard boiled eggs. And there's lots of different creative ways to do that. But protein is important not only for satiety, it is also important for maintaining muscle mass. Now, women in their 20s and 30s, you are at your peak years of building not only bone, but also muscle mass. Many women are on synthetic hormones, which makes it harder for their bodies to maintain and build muscle and bone, which is unfortunate. I was certainly one of those women that was on the pill, oral contraceptives, had no idea this would be a byproduct of that. 
And so they miss out on these opportunities. But you want to think of muscle as a currency for metabolic health. We want to think about muscle as helping us maintain insulin sensitivity. So when we talk about protein, it is also important for helping to maintain lean muscle. And the more lean muscle we maintain, the more metabolically more the more metabolically um, adept we are, the more insulin sensitive they, we are, the less likely we are to become uh, insulin resistant or develop hyperinsulinemia, depending on who you're speaking to. And so I think those are two factors that are very important for people to understand that when you're hitting those protein macro metrics that are for you, you will, you will be able to walk away from the table and feel completely satiated. You will not be hungry. You'll not go back to the pantry or your refrigerator looking for more food because you're just too full and full in a good way, not full that you're uncomfortably full. And I always say like, you can't, you can, you can continue to eat, you know, bowls of pasta and lots of cake and cookies. But if you eat a 10 ounce or 12 ounce steak as a woman, you're probably going to be pretty full. Like those particular hormonal receptors in your gut are going to be communicating to your brain that you are very full. You're very satiated. And I, much to your point about chronically under eating protein and being hungry all the time. And it just starts this vicious cycle of blood sugar dysregulation. And so I find that hitting those protein macros, getting closer to those protein metrics really make a big, big difference in the way that people feel and the way that they have a relationship with food. Yeah, I'm, I'm smirking right now because I literally am a carnivore. I will eat so much meat and people around me are always like, my gosh, Yasmin, you eat so much protein. I'm like, I truly feel like my brain turns on. And I know you mentioned this in another interview, like you also live a big life. You have a business, you have family. I truly feel like I have to eat this way and do certain lifestyle shifts to just support the life that I'm living or else I literally cannot do it. It's way too difficult. Yeah, it's interesting. I was on, I, I just got back from vacation with my cousin and um, I had to fly overnight, which is never fun to do. But it was interesting when I was observing that they fed everyone dinner, which I did decline. And then when I woke up in the morning or, you know, it seemed like I sort of woke up after a couple hours of not so fantastic sleep, they were feeding people breakfast. And, you know, they kept, they were so worried that I wasn't eating. And I said, no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm preparing my body for getting on a new time zone. And so in a lot of different ways, the reason why I can manage and mitigate changing time zones and having all these responsibilities is because I feel my body properly. And I wasn't, I literally got off the plane, went to my hotel, took a shower and spent the whole day up and awake and getting acclimated to a new time zone, which would not have happened if I had eaten that, you know, carbohydrate laden dinner and then that carbohydrate laden breakfast. Um, but watched with all these people, they were like, what's wrong with her? I was like, I'm totally okay. I ate before I got on the plane. I'm really very good. But I love that one of the things that happens when you're, you're eating enough protein and you're not eating too frequently is you have a lot more energy. So it's like, I don't spend my day thinking about my next meal. I just do all the things that I need to do in my personal and professional life. It makes things so much easier. I've never felt like more of a social outcast when I refuse food on the airplane and the stewardess, they're like, they're just like, what? You, you don't want this? Like, how could that yeah, be? I know. They actually gave me a credit because they were concerned that I was not happy with the options. I said, <laughs> has nothing to do with that. I don't, I'm not eating on the plane. I'm good. Yeah. I'm really good. They were, they thought it was very strange. <laughs> well, something that you said, um, it's a little bit off topic, but I want to talk about it especially with women, is the idea of emotional or stress eating. How do you work with your clients, the people that you work with, 
to kind of overcome this because I know for me, when I'm stressed out, maybe I just completely skip meals I don't eat at all yeah. and then I end up eating something I don't want to eat. Or if I'm feeling very sad or anxious about something, then I'll turn to food for comfort. So what are some of the tools that you recommend in these situations? Yeah, and I think it's it's I think it's very normal for people to self-medicate, if you will, with food. Uh, you know, whether we're frightened, we're scared, we're mad, we're upset. And so I think it, it's kind of taking that opportunity to acknowledge the feelings you're experiencing, which I think is is critically important. Those uncomfortable feelings that you're trying not to deal with because you're leaning into food or, or other, you know, other habits. Um, I always say take a walk, take a walk, take a glass. You've got to kind of get yourself out of the environment you're in, do something that's more proactive. And if you still decide when you come back from your walk or having a conversation with a friend or exercising, you still want to eat that cookie or have some ice cream, then, you know, make sure you're moderating it. But I think it's really important to acknowledge the feelings that you're trying to suppress by eating the food. Um, we're all guilty of it, or I don't even say guilty. Let me reframe that. I think we have all experienced those instances when we lean into chocolate or ice cream or pizza or whatever it is, these hyper palatable foods that temporarily make us feel good temporarily. And then afterwards, we don't feel so good. So the one thing that I generally recommend with my own patients is to examine and to, to reflect on the feelings that they're trying to suppress before they even go about suppressing them. And then also like just getting out of the house or getting out of the environment you're in going for a walk, um, you know, doing something for joy, you know, hugging your significant other, hugging your kids, you know, releasing oxytocin, which will help buffer the cortisol um, that is very likely, you know, uh, heightened because of the stress that you're experiencing. But those are typical ways. I always say you have to kind of get yourself out of the environment you're in. And I'm not talking about you have to, you know, get in a car and drive far away. Just do something physical that will get you focused on something else other than the uncomfortable feelings you're trying to suppress. And that's that's typically, that's a good starting point is what I would say. Obviously, this isn't my area of expertise, but it's definitely an area that I'm familiar with because so many women, um, whether where, wherever they are in their menstrual cycles, sometimes they'll feel like an overpowering desire to eat a certain food or you know they'll say, I do a really great job until the week before my menstrual cycle or I get my period and I'm really tired and I'm really sad. And so then I want to lean into the Ben and Jerry's or chocolate or, or whatever else, um, you know, food that they really enjoy eating when they're feeling down, but understanding that there's probably a reason for why you're experiencing what you're experiencing and not being afraid to deal with the uncomfortable feelings that you're trying to kind of suppress and not deal with. Yeah. I love that. My, uh, our friend, Dr. Mark Hyman always says, I ask myself, what am I feeling and what do I need? And I thought that's really beautiful. And sometimes he even tells people to put it in the kitchen. What am I feeling? What do I need? Exactly. Um, so something that I'm working on with my mom right now as she's about to turn 70 next year is really focusing on building muscle. She's not been someone that's ever gone to the gym in her life. She's not been someone to lift weights, but we're getting her into all of that. Um, but she's also practicing some intermittent fasting here and there. So how does fasting impact muscle synthesis? Oh, it's a great question. Um, and this is where it comes into having discussions with women about the fact that when you are in menopause, uh, you are hormonally working. If you're not taking hormone replacement therapy, you are working at a hormonal disadvantage. You are more prone to inflammation, oxidative stress, and insulin resistance. So building muscle 
um, is a, a scooch more challenging at that stage just because you don't have as much of the foundational blocks. Um, but it really becomes important not only to consume enough protein in your feeding window. So the women that are doing OMAD all the time, I always say there's no judgment, but there's no way you're going to get 100 grams of protein in a meal. If there's a woman out there that can do it, more power to them, but I haven't met one yet. Um, number two is, you know, you need enough stimulus to make muscle. So you need to lift heavy things. You need to be working actively, um, working with someone that if you're not familiarized with, with strength training, working with someone to help you understand how to lift properly and lift, um, lift with enough effort so that you are getting that proper, you know, muscle protein synthesis. And then the sleep piece. I find a lot of perimenopausal and menopausal women really struggle with sleep and helping them understand that that is when our body is, is in this repair mode. That is when our body is optimizing, you know, muscle, muscle protein synthesis. And so the sleep, the strength training and enough protein. So that's when I will say to women, don't, don't eat just one meal a day. That is not going to set you up for, um, you know, building lean muscle. The other thing is, and, and I fervently believe there are a lot of us as clinicians in the metabolic health space that aren't huge fans of doing really long fasts. If you're already a thin person and you're in perimenopause or menopause, that is not the time to be doing three, four or five day fasts because there's going to be a net impact where you're going to be breaking, you're going to be catabolizing muscle at the expense of doing these long fasts. So you have to do it very carefully. And so not over fasting, not over training, not over restricting, and I think that, you know, for me, when I'm, when I'm working with women and also like really looking at your hormones to see, would you benefit from some hormone replacement therapy of some capacity? And I think that, you know, when I finished my medical training, this is the start of the women's health initiative. And I think now clinicians better understand that HRT can be very important for women in menopause and perimenopause. So that's a good starting point, not over fasting, making sure she's getting two good sized meals a day with you know, 40 to 50 grams of protein. And if she's not there yet, that's okay. But slowly kind of working your way up and making sure she's lifting enough weight wise to be able to stimulate that muscle protein synthesis. And then the other piece of getting good sleep, because a lot of women just assume after the age of 35, 40, 45, 50, that a good night's sleep is something elusive. And it's only for, you know, there's a very small minority of women that that sleep well. And I'm, I'm here to tell people that's certainly not the case, but I love that you're looking out for your mom. And I would say just making sure that those three things are met, you know, day to day pretty consistently will make a big difference. And when somebody is going on a longer fast or their fasting window is very long, do you recommend that they continue to work out during these time periods? Yeah. I mean, I think it really depends on the individual. So obviously I lift weights, heavy weights, three to four days a week. Um, I fast anywhere from, and I'm just trying to give you an example of what I do. 15 to 18 hours really depends on, you know, what my day is like, but the most important thing for me beyond just the, the weight training is that protein piece. So for me, I don't do really long fast because I'm not looking to change. Uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say I'm not looking to change body composition, but I don't want to lose the muscle mass that I have been able to build. And so I think it really comes down to uh, a little bit of experimentation to find what works best and really being honest with yourself, track your metrics. You know, I, I have an app in my gym with my trainer so she can see how much weight I'm lifting week to week, really being strategic about ensuring you are challenging yourself enough but not so much that you are you are at the detriment of breaking down lean muscle that you have. And I think, unfortunately, there's still this mindset that, you know, skinny is better. 
And, you know, there's something called sarcopenic obesity, which is a fancy way of saying people lose muscle mass and the muscle is replaced with adipose tissue or fat tissue. And we know that, you know, you're, you're at greater risk the older that you are. North of 40, it's not a question of if but when. But I see a lot of women that are very, very thin and they have this very sinewy, very like, it's not even lean muscle. They just look very thin. Like they no longer have... Um, you know, their, their, their glutes are no longer well-defined because they've just had so much loss of muscle mass, but understand there are things we can do to kind of help reverse that, but do it as proactively as possible. Absolutely. I think I identified as one of those women and until I got the protein piece and the exercise piece in, I felt not substantially only, not only substantially different in my body, but my mental clarity for sure. That's amazing. You know, Cynthia, I actually want to talk about one thing you just mentioned, because I feel like a lot of women skip out on sleep. And you mentioned just the power of good sleep. So can you tell us what does that mean to have good sleep? And maybe with some of the women you work with, some tips that you recommend for us to get that good sleep? Yeah, I always say that sleep is foundational to our health, which means, you know, don't add in fasting, don't add in weight training, don't add in you know, uh, massive shifts in, in what you're eating until you are sleeping through the night and sleeping well, because there's so much restorative processes that go on in the body. We know we get peaks of growth hormone and sex hormones, and in particular for women, estrogen. We know that there's something called the glymphatic system. It's again, it's like this waste recycling process where our body goes in and clears out plaques and specific types of protein that can impact brain health. We also know that brain health is exquisitely tied to the quality of sleep that we are um, we are able to attain because it can impact blood sugar regulation, impacts leptin and ghrelin. So these hormones that, you know, um, allow us to have feel fully satiated or allow stimulate our appetite. I always say, if you don't sleep well through the night, you're not going to crave broccoli. You're going to crave cookies and you're going to crave ice cream because your body's looking for a quick source of fuel. So when I'm talking to women about foundational approaches to health and sleep is such an important part of that, it's getting off electronics in the evening. It's sleeping in a cold, dark room. And for a lot of women in middle age, it suddenly becomes like sleep becomes this elusive, elusive aspect of their health. They, you know, took it for granted before. And it really starts when we are our ovaries. We're going into early ovarian failure, um, perimenopause, that transition where we're getting closer to menopause, you know, 10 to 15 years preceding menopause. Our ovaries are producing less progesterone and progesterone is this amazing hormone that is anti-anxiety. It helps with sleep. Um, it helps with reducing our rates of depression. And all of a sudden women will say, I can't sleep. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. What's going on? And it's that progesterone loss with this relative estrogen dominance because they're always trying to balance each, out, each other out like a seesaw. So I think about those lifestyle pieces. I think about connection to nature in the morning. So when I get up in the morning and I'm walking my dogs outside without sunglasses on, I'm recognizing that that is giving very important information, not only to my brain, but my body, that it's time to suppress melatonin, increase cortisol, get my day going. I think also, you know, not eating too close to bedtime. Um, a lot of women don't acknowledge that alcohol is a very net negative impact on sleep quality. It really suppresses our REM sleep, you know, there's different types of sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, all of which are very important. And then in terms of supplements, you know, things that I think are very helpful, I think about um, myo-inositol, also very helpful for women with PCOS. Um, it's, it's a powder or you can take a capsule. Um, I do find it helps with improving, you know, sleep latency. So you'll fall asleep a little faster. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, you'll be able to fall asleep a little bit more quickly. Um, I think about, you know, if you are in need of progesterone and many people are, 
um, you know, getting compounded or, or oral uh, progesterone can be very helpful. Again, really dependent on the individual. But in terms of other supplements that I like, I love GABA. I love L-theanine. You know, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, but really helps, um, you know, calm the central nervous system, help calm the brain. L-theanine, for an, as an example, is found in green tea. So it is naturally occurring. It's an amino acid. But those are typically the things I will recommend. Um, obviously, medication, um, aka progesterone, is usually added, you know, towards the end after you've tried all these other things. But really understanding that that sleep hygiene is so important, much like when we have babies and we have toddlers and kind of giving them things to let their body know that it's time to wind down for the day. I think that can be very, very helpful. And sometimes things as simple as what I've mentioned make such a big difference that people feel completely different. Yeah, everything that you mentioned, I never honored my sleep um, until I kind of met Drew, who you know is my husband, and he's kind of been in the world of wellness. And I realized these little micro changes that you've talked about, like making sure you know you're not in technology very close to bedtime you know making sure that the lights are off and you're not like in bright light getting so close to bed not eating so close to your bedtime staying cool at night like those were so game changing for me and i'm just reiterating that because these simple things can just be so helpful and i love how you mentioned you know you don't really jump into having women whether it's fasting or changing so many things until you think about their sleep because it's that important so i just i think everything you just said is just so powerful thank you and and i think this is where we get it wrong because we don't sleep well and before we start changing the lifestyle piece we are reaching for supplements and supplements absolutely have their place but i always say before you're adding a supplement really really the lifestyle stuff is so mm -hmm. important and there's things, you know, beyond that. I'm sure all of us could talk about this for hours, but I think on a lot of different levels, we've been so conditioned by traditional allopathic medicine. And let me be clear, there are time and a place for that, that we have to have a, take a supplement or a pill to fix a problem when in essence, if we would change the way that we are living our lives, we would probably have a greater impact than adding another medication or adding a supplement. Again, although there are instances where there is certainly a really good indication to do so. Absolutely, yeah. I think about that for two specific time periods in a woman's life, um, and there's more, but fertili around fertility, and then the transition from perimenopause into menopause. And so often they're met with just, here's a Band-Aid solution, or hey, you can't get pregnant, let's jump into something else, versus the doctor actually sitting down and saying like, hey, let's look at all these lifestyle components. Are you sleeping? How are you eating? Are you stressed? Like all of that stuff is going to matter. And so we feel super passionately about, are you bringing in all of those other things? Not saying that they're easy to do, but they can make a yeah. huge impact for sure. Um, I wanna talk about creatine because I just started taking your creatine powder. I'm new to this world. I don't know much about it, but I've been taking it now before my workouts. And I wanna talk about the importance of creatine. What is it, what does it do and who is it for? Yeah, it, it's interesting when we talk about supplements, creatine monohydrate is one of the most well-researched and safest supplements that's out there. And the first question I always get is, can't we get enough through our diet? And I always say, unfortunately not, but it's something that helps replenish um, ATP. And so ATP is um, an energy molecule in our cells. And you know, if we're eating a, a nutrient-dense whole foods diet, it's a really unique way for not just not just women, but also men to be able to improve muscular performance, endurance, 
Um, I, I think a lot of people don't understand there's a lot of brain health benefits as well. It helps with memory and cognition. Um, it's interesting over the last couple months, we've gotten so many messages from people. There are people who are feeling it's improved their depression, um, people that feel like it's improved their, their menstrual cycle regularity. Obviously, there's a lot of really good research, but most of it is really focused on brain health and cognition and also um, muscular health. And the things that I have seen it do for many people, it's helped with sleep duration. So people are sleeping better. Um, women are feeling like when they get in the gym, they're able to consistently increase the weights that they're using and recover faster. And so when we really break down creatine monohydrate, it's actually hydrating those muscles. But, you know, maybe 30 years ago, there were a lot of bodybuilders that were taking anabolic steroids and massive doses of creatine. And the thing that's really interesting is that's not the type or the use of creatine that we're talking about. We're talking about the well-studied doses. And if you look at the research, there's research that's compelling, not just for women at peak fertile years. There are certain times in our cycle when we actually need more creatine. Um, there's also really good evidence to demonstrate that perimenopausal and menopausal women benefit from repletion of creatine. And when we're looking at even ve vegans and vegetarians, they actually, their protein needs are a little bit higher because they're not consuming animal products. And so three grams a day for most women unless they are vegan or vegetarian, and men can do about five grams a day. And that is a very safe, well-established dose that will really help boost those, you know, not just performance in the gym, but actually improve sleep quality, cognition, brain clarity. And it's interesting for me, um, I used to think about it as this, you know, gym bro, you know, supplement until I really dove into the research. And I realized I was like, there's actually really compelling information that suggests that there are so many benefits. There's even some mental health benefits, although I don't talk about it that as much um, because I'm not a not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but certainly things that have led me to believe that there are many, many reasons for why creatine can be beneficial. So even if someone's not necessarily going to the gym and crushing it every day, creatine could be something that they would take regardless. Absolutely. And it's interesting because that's one of the questions that we get is, do I need to only take this on days I exercise? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I always explain that, no, actually, the research suggests taking it consistently is really what you want. But you don't have to be a power lifter. You might just be someone who is, you know, going to the gym and doing yoga and doing all these different modalities, understanding that your body is using this as an additional energy source and how important that can be with mm -hmm. not only recovery, but for many people, helping them to feel as if they are maintaining their muscle mass, but also helping to build upon it as well. Yeah, it's in my daily shakes. We use it. I throw in like my Bia, my greens, my creatine. I'm like, I'm good it. to go. I accidentally just drank Drew's creatine this morning because it doesn't do <laughs> water. You can't really taste it. I was just thought it was a glass of water. And I was like, whoops, sorry. I just drank everything he put together. But it's a really easy thing you can kind of throw into everything. So we love it over here. Um, oh, okay. you know, yeah. And, you know, I want to kind of go back into fasting. I know we've talked about just so many different facets, but with the women that you work with, what would you say are maybe a few of the biggest mistakes women do when it comes to fasting? Well, I think there's a few things in it. And I have to believe these are well-meaning individuals on social media who will say, oh, if it's under 50 calories, it won't break your fast. So when I'm, when I'm talking to women who are really serious about wanting to use this as a strategy to improve their metabolic health, snacking while fasting is not fasting. So if you're sitting down and eating a bowl of berries, if you're, you know, having a sugary beverage, if you're chomping on a bunch of gum, uh, you, you are actually breaking your fast unknowingly. So I think it's the, 
the the things that people do that they think are pretty innocent and innocuous that are actually breaking their fast because there's something called the cephalic phase insulin response, which is your body's way of prepping your body for food coming. So if you're sitting there eating something really sweet, it is definitely telling your body that food is coming. So that's usually number one. Number two is not fasting for your cycle. So excuse me, if you're still getting a menstrual cycle, um, understanding there's a time in your menstrual cycle where you have a biologic advantage. You, you know, during that follicular phase when estrogen predominates, it's a whole lot easier to fast versus right before your menstrual cycle. And I even have physician friends who will text me and say, what is wrong with me? I can barely make it to 14 hours. I'm like, where are you in your cycle? Oh, I'm getting my period tomorrow. Well, guess what? That's exactly why. So I think not fasting for your cycle. And then I would say the last thing is, you know, we've conditioned an entire generation of people that results should be instantaneous. And women will say, well, I decided to fast because I want to lose weight. I want to change body composition. And then they're upset if in a week or two weeks, they aren't seeing changes on the scale. And I always remind them, like, there's so much of what goes on with fasting is beneath the skin. So you are still deriving benefits. Even if stepping on the scale, you don't see a number change. There are so many benefits. So giving your body time to, um, to be able to kind of regroup, um, you know, work through a plateau. Sometimes it involves not just the fasting. Maybe you also need to change your macros. Maybe your sleep is terrible. Maybe you're over-exercising. And those are typically the most common things that that we will see. Um, my team and I, when we're, you know, working with women, that those are the things that people are most often surprised to know are impacting their results with fasting. What about coffee before this, the two hours that women or whoever it is, is maybe not eating in the morning? What about having coffee during that time? What is that doing to the body? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of people consuming coffee and, you know, bitter teas because it's providing our bodies with polyphenols. Um, there's research that suggests you get an upregulation in fat oxidation so you can get some fat loss. I think it really depends on the individual because I would say most people tolerate caffeine in the morning. For some people, they get jittery. They don't metabolize it well. They don't feel good when they have it on an empty stomach. And understanding that if your body is stressed, you're going to increase your cortisol, which is going to increase your blood sugar. So again, it's very individual, but overall, like plain coffee, bitter teas, I'm a fan of. Um, sometimes if you're really struggling with the bitterness of black coffee, you can add Redmond's, like high quality salt, like Redmond's. You could add cinnamon, which will actually help with insulin sensitivity. Um, those things can be very helpful, especially if someone's going from having like a super fatty coffee with a lot of cream to all of a sudden they're drinking very bitter plant-based compounds, which have very powerful messages that they will send to our bodies, really understanding that, you know, trying, like I always tell people, I'm not a coffee drinker. I don't necessarily love bitter tea, but what I learned to do was I would brew my tea, I would ice it, and then I would drink it with a straw. And that's how I learned how to drink green tea. But I think for people to understand, like, don't be afraid of bitter. Bitter's not per se a bad thing. Like our, our unfortunately, our, palates are really conditioned for sweet foods, but I do, as a rule, I do like coffee and I do like bitter teas um, for people to consume in a fasted state, provided that they feel good. If they feel nauseous or they don't feel good when they consume those foods, it could be a quantity. Maybe it's too much coffee. Maybe it's mycotoxins or mold that are actually in the coffee. And that's why I always suggest like high quality um, you know, companies that actually test for mycotoxins. For anyone that doesn't know, if they're listeners to your podcast, I'm sure they do, but um, Unfortunately, coffee tends to be a very mold-laden uh, crop, and so you just have to be diligent. Like, you don't want to pick the cheapest thing at the grocery store. You actually want to do some due diligence if you enjoy consuming coffee to find a good quality brand. 
Yeah. You know, I want to talk about something because we're talking about coffee and I know it can be, you know, a diuretic for some women. And I was just prepping before this interview and you were talking about how often you hear from the women you work with that they're not having as frequent bowel movements as they should. So can you kind of talk about, you know, what is common for someone and, um, you know, any any suggestions you have around kind of being more regular and why yeah. it's so <laughs> well, and it, and it's funny because I think most women think it's normal that they don't go to the, they don't have a bowel movement every day. Now I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm used to talking about this with patients all the time. So, um, some of the most common things, it's really understanding that when we are looking at the autonomic nervous system, when we're looking at our brains and, and our physiology, if we are chronically stressed, we are literally not able to have a bowel movement because we are so stressed. We are not in this rest and repose parasympathetic side of our, our brains. We are in this fight or flight at any moment I have to flee from danger. And if you don't feel safe, you're not going to have a bowel movement. So making sure people are relaxed, they set aside time to go. Um, I think a lot of people are chronically dehydrated, so that doesn't help, you know, being dehydrated. Uh, you know, it, most individuals are not consuming a variety of vegetables and, you know, plant compounds. So, you know, I, I do find that people that are eating some salad and eating vegetables um, do find that that helps with, um, certainly helps with bowel movements. I always suggest if someone's constipated, uh, enjoying foods that are bile supportive. So whether it's shaved carrots, um, artichoke hearts, beets, um, bitter greens like arugula, etc. Those can be very helpful for supporting bile synthesis. And it, almost always when someone's constipated, I'm always wondering if they've got a gallbladder issue. You know, do they have viscous bile that doesn't help them break down and emulsify fat? Are they consuming too much fat? Because there are definitely people that get constipated when they eat a lot of fatty meats. So maybe they need to eat leaner meats. Maybe they need to have not as much fat in their diet. I'm not saying no fat. I'm just saying less fat. And then the other thing is like really getting into the habit of understanding that it's a normal physiologic response that when we get up in the morning, even if we don't go right away, that when we eat that first meal, our body is kind of primed to kind of push things forward. So you should be having, you should definitely be having a bowel movement at least once a day, if not twice. Um, in my training, I was taught that you should have one after every meal. And I was like, who has time for that? That's not realistic. But understand there's lots of little things you can do, you know, uh, you know, fresh ground flax seeds and chia seeds together thrown into a smoothie can be very helpful. I mentioned the bile supportive foods. I also think about, you know, aloe vera juice. It doesn't taste great, but, you know, a quarter cup of that can be very effective. And then there are things that are stronger that we can use. And I always say if it's a sudden change in bowel habits, that's very different than a chronically constipated person. And also looking at you know, what's your thyroid like? How many women have an undiagnosed underactive thyroid and don't realize that that is one of many symptoms they can experience? So making sure your thyroid is optimized. And then the other thing is, you know, setting aside time. I know when my kids were younger and they were banging on the door or I had to leave the door open if I tried to go to the bathroom, but there was never a good time to go during the day. So making sure if you get up 30 minutes earlier than your family, um, even if you don't have a family, but just allowing yourself enough time to go. Like I also think about squatty potties, um, you know, just having people's legs elevated on a stool can make a big difference with helping them go to the bathroom. But yeah, constipation is a very, very common issue and it should not be our norm. Like we should not believe that constipation is normal because it's not. Yeah. I'm, 
sorry to call my husband out on this podcast if you're listening, <laughs> but he um, he takes his bathroom going very seriously. The squatty potty, the, all the tools are in there. So I am very familiar with that entire world, I but I know it. it's difference because when you're constipated, you just feel completely off. Like the few times that it's happened in my life, I feel brain fog. I can't focus. And so it can be if you're constipated and you're listening to this, you got to do something about it. I remember I met a colon hydrotherapist and she said, I can always tell when the constipated person walks into the room because they're so <laughs> tightly wound yeah. up. They're carrying all the stress in their body. So it's such an important piece of the puzzle. Um, no. I want to talk about, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And I, I laugh. Why well, I don't laugh. Of course, I'm incredibly sympathetic to people that are struggling with this, but how many people go on a trip and because they're not in their normal toilet or their normal house, they can't go to the bathroom. I cannot tell you how many women will say, oh, if I'm going on a trip, there's no way I'm going to go. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't go for a week? I mean, that would be miserable. How do you enjoy your trip? So I think so much of it is just acknowledging if you are one of those people that's prone to constipation, that you have a system down pat, you know, going from like A to Z, like the things you need to do to make sure that that happens consistently and regularly, because this is metabolic waste. We don't want this recirculating and staying in our bodies. We want to make sure that we are effectively eliminating it as, as often as we can. Absolutely. So I want to talk about um, one of the mistakes that I see for people who are really interested in intermittent fasting and dabbling in it. It's not just about when you're not eating. It's also about what you do eat when you when you are eating. So I want to talk about um, kind of the way that you like to, even just for yourself, because I know everyone's different, how do you set up your meals to just really provide the most nourishing information that your body needs? Yeah. And I think this is an important question. And so again, it goes back to a degree of experimentation. I typically will say you always want to break uh, your fast with protein. So whether or not it's bone broth, um, a high quality protein shake, a steak, fish, chicken, etc., protein in either healthy fats or protein and some type of high quality carbohydrate. And protein is always the metric that is a constant. And then deciding, you know, as an example, if you have a big salmon steak or a ribeye, you don't need to add more fat. You've got fat in that protein versus, you know, you sit down with a lean piece of fish or a lean piece of chicken and you decide you want to add avocado or nuts or extra virgin olive oil, some type of healthy fat. I find for most people, they do really well. For me, my first meal, um, I really push the protein. So I probably have 60 grams of protein in my first meal. And then I am so satiated. I am not eating again for four or five hours. So I think that some people want to break their fast with something light. They want to have bone broth. They want to have a salad. Maybe they, if they tolerate dairy, they're having, you know, full fat, um, organic, uh, Greek yogurt with maybe some seeds or nuts and some berries. Um, but really understanding that a degree of supplementation is, or excuse me, a degree, a degree of experimentation can be very beneficial to find out what makes you feel good. I know for myself, if I don't eat enough protein in that first meal, I'm going to be looking for something. I'm going to be looking for, I love dark chocolate. That's like my one vice. I might be looking for that dark chocolate. I might be looking for something else that I want to, you know, snack on. And I remind my patients, just like I remind anyone, when you feel like you need to snack, it's really your body's way of telling you, did you not eat enough in that meal? Because if you ate enough that meal, you wouldn't even be thinking about eating more food right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
I think that's all the questions that I had for today. Yasmin, is there anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, I know we're at time, but I just think this is so powerful. And honestly, it's such an honor, Cynthia, to have you on. I feel like we could have talked for hours, but this was such a blast. Thank you. No, thank you. This is great. I really enjoyed getting to know you both better.